more events. Somebody really needs to pick up that trash in the lobby. We really need more young families in the church. I don't like these new songs. It's too crowded in here. Some of these people just need to go home. I told the pastor I was going to church, but I went to the lake instead. Well, bless your heart. Join me, Judges chapter number eight. <clears throat> Judges chapter eight. Seventh book in your Bible. Judges chapter number eight. How many of you know someone who seems to complain all the time? Don't elbow anybody right now, but do you know some people that like to complain? It's interesting. Some people seem to complain about everything. We'll complain about the weather. Come on, Texans. Right? It's too hot in the summer, and then that brief weekend in January, it's too cold. You know what I'm talking about? Um, I've heard a number of Christians complain about the speed of the service industry. I think we have a name for these people. We call them Karens, right? Right? Um, we complain about the way people drive. Come on, y'all. Listen, I need some help. Don't leave me up here by myself. Y'all complain about the way people drive? Yes, right? Some people... It's almost like a spiritual gift. They're just so good at complaining. Um, my family and I, we had the privilege of going to Washington, D.C. Um, over July 4th. And we got to tour the Capitol and go in the White House. And we got to go on the Washington Monument and did all of those different things there at the in Washington, D.C., tons of people everywhere, um, but we had a good time. Um, but there was one day especially, I think it was Monday, that it was terribly hot. The humidity was terrible. If you know anything about Washington, D.C., um, it's either easier to take the um, subway um, or, you know, rent a little bike or something besides driving. The problem is most of the time you get to a spot and then you have to walk from there anyways. Um, and so we were walking a lot. And there were some people with me um, that, I'm not putting any names on this, that um, began to complain. Um, uh, they complained about how hot it was. They complained about how far we had to walk. Um, uh, they complained about how old all this stuff was. Um, uh, how uninteresting it was. And after 30, 40, 50, six hours of it, um, you know, we, we, my wife had enough. And um, she looked at these people, I don't know who they were, and said, you're going to love this. Um, and she gets this from her dad. There was one time when we were um, in Florida for Christmas and we were going to look at lights and somebody else started complaining. And my father-in-law looked at everybody, and as lovingly as my father-in-law could say, we're going and you're going to have a good time. <laughs> so my wife looks at whoever these people were and says, you're going to love this. You're going to love history. You're going to beg me to show you more history. Someday you're going to praise Jesus for all of history. 
And if you don't enjoy this, you're going to be history. <laughs> and I looked at her and said, I've never found you more attractive in my life. <laughs> if you want to drive people away, complain all the time. Someone said that complainers have spiritual bad breath. What do you do when someone has bad breath? You're talking to them. And it's usually these people that, um, you know, they have halitosis. They don't realize it. And so they're the really ones that get close when they're talking. Do you know some close talkers? Right? And they like to share what they've been eating with you as they talk. You're talking to them. And you just talk from there. You, what do you do? You take a step back. Right? It's, it's bad breath. And when you have spiritual bad breath, what do you do? You take steps back. When people complain all the time, it drives you away. Some of you have asked, why can't we get help in this ministry that I lead? Maybe, listen, and I can't say this for sure, but maybe it's because of your negative attitude. Ooh, it got quiet. Maybe it's because, I don't know if you've seen the title for today, it's because of your big, fat, bitter mouth. We had a work day eight days ago, and it was seriously the best work day I've ever been a part of. And I can't help but think one of the reasons it was so great was because some people didn't come. It's not going to get any easier this morning. <laughs> the first thing I want you to write is this. Complaining offends the heart of God. The way I picture it. Those of you that have children, if you've ever done a lot for them, and they just whine about it afterwards, you know you bless them in so many ways, and they just come back with, well, I'm so bored, or I've got nothing to do, or my life stinks. What child in, the, you, in our church can actually say, my life stinks, right? And you just want to say very lovingly, with all of the love of the Lord in your heart, you ungrateful little brat. When did Israel complain? Think about this. The nation of Israel is known for a number of things. But one of the things that they're known for, if you read your Bible, is complaining. And the timing of their complaints makes it that much worse. They complained after they were freed. They complained after the miracles. They complained, listen, right smack dab in the middle of the blessing of God. Here's what's interesting. Interesting. There's over 150 references in your Bible to complaining, and none of them speak of it in a good light. The overarching theme is that God hates mouths that complain. Here's how God feels when his people complain. Look what it says in Numbers 11, verse 1. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. The Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. He says, the complaining of his people made God angry. The Bible says, the fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some that were on the outskirts of the camp. Their complaining made God so angry it so offended him that he shot fire and burned the outskirts of the camp of his people. The principle is very clear. Complaining offends the heart of God. Because the people that should be thanking God for his blessings, then turn around and snub him with their nose as they complain. I like the technical term for this. It's called confirmation bias. And here's how it goes. If you have a preconceived idea against something, you will search out information that confirms your preconceived bias. If you are critical and you want to find something wrong, you can very easily interpret new information in such a way to confirm your preconceived bias. You can do that with our music and find things wrong with our music if you have a preconceived bias. You can do that with um, who in the church has certain positions. Well, I don't like that person, and I'm going to find all the reasons why they shouldn't be in that position because I don't like that person. 
Uh, you can do that with the school that we have here at, at the church. If you don't like some of the things that the school has done, you'll end up not liking anything that the school has done. Why is this? Because you have confirmation bias. Some come into church looking for reasons to be mad. Here's a tip. If you look for it, you'll find it. But if you look for reasons to be happy, joyful, grateful, you know what you'll find? Reasons to be happy, joyful, and grateful. Let me give you a story. For example, there was a pastor who was meeting with a visiting family after the services. They went into his office, and they began to talk about their past history, where they had come from, the church that they had been. And they asked the preacher, what are the people like in your church? And so instead of answering that question, he asked them, well, what do you think about the people in the church that you're coming from? And they said they were some of the most ungrateful, bitter, hateful people, and they list complaint after complaint, calling some of these people by name. After their diatribe, the pastor looked at them and said, well, I'm afraid what you will find is that the people in our church are exactly like those people. The very next day, he had a visiting family call and say, hey, can we come up and visit with you today? And sure enough, they got together with the pastor, met with him in his office, and the meeting went almost identical to the point where they asked, well, what are the people like in your church? And the preacher said, well, what are the people like in the church that you're coming from? And he said, well, they said they were some of the most wonderful, loving, gracious kind people I have ever met. And the preacher looked at them with a big smile on his face and said, listen, if you come to our church, you're going to find that our people are just like those people. The pastor was trying to show us something. You find what you look for. You see, if you want to complain, you can find things all day to complain about even about Central Baptist Church. If you want to be bitter and critical and negative, you don't have to look very far to find things to be bitter and critical and negative about. You want to be critical, you want to be negative, you will be miserable, and so will the people around you, and it will cost you significantly. Why is it? Sociologists are actually studying this and noticing that the more blessed that people are, the more critical they become. How is that? That we can take the unbelievable blessings of God and turn them in his face and then complain about all of the blessings that God has given to us. In recent generations, they argue that people are becoming more critical and more negative and complaining more than they ever have. And I say these sociologists must be attending church. Because it's the truth. We're going to look at a story today that, in my opinion, blows my mind. This is a story that I just, it, it's unbelievable to me that the people in the story would complain about what they complain about. You ready? Go with me to verse number one. Judges chapter eight, verse number one says, And the men of Ephraim said unto him, Why hast thou served us thus, that thou called, un, uh, called us not when thou went to fight with the Midianites. And they did chide with him sharply. And he said unto them, What have I done now in comparison of you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God hath delivered unto your hands the princes of Midian, Orab, and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison of you? Then their anger was abated toward him when he had said that. And Gideon came to Jordan and passed over. He, the 300 men that were with him, faint, yet pursuing them. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for this story. Help us to see truth in it. I pray, Lord, that we will not allow this sermon and the word of God to pass over us thinking that it doesn't apply. But help us to be honest about ways that we fill our mouths with complaints. Remind us today of your goodness. And I pray our focus will be on all that you do for us. In your name I pray. 
Amen. Here's the story. As many of you know, this story is about a man named Gideon in the 300. But the story starts weeks before this with Gideon hiding in a wine press. Gideon was a fearful young man when the Lord comes to him to select him as the leader of the nation of Israel, to lead the nation of Israel in battle against the enemies called the Midianites. When God calls him, he's hiding from the enemy. The reason is the Midianites for seven years, just remember, that's an important number, for seven whole years had harshly ruled over the people of Israel. For seven years they were held in bondage within their own country. For seven years they had been terrorized, starved, and murdered by the Midianites. While he was in the wine press hiding, God finds him and calls him to do work for him. How many of you know you can hide from people, but you can't hide from God? Like many of us, Gideon fights the calling of God initially. Gideon was reluctant to obey the Lord's call in his life at first, but eventually he did as the Lord commanded. God calls him a mighty man of valor while he's hiding from the Midianites. I think this is significant for you and I today. It should be awesome to us to know that God sees what we can be, not just what we are today. 32,000 men, after Gideon calls for people to come, 32,000 men show up to join Gideon's army. They are a small army compared to the Midianite army that was there. This is important. The Midianite army was 135,000. 135,000 or more, if you read um, uh, the beginning chapters of this book. An important question to answer. How many enemies did Gideon face? Come on, church. One? No, there are at least 135,000 of them. How many enemies did Gideon face? 135,000. All right, it's not a trick question. I gave you the answer. It's right there. 135,000. Even though the odds were stacked in the Midianites' favor, the Lord told Gideon that the Israelite army was too big. 32,000 to 135. And so Gideon is told by God to go to all of the men in his army and say, if you're afraid, you can go home. 22,000 leave. 22,000 leave. I'll be honest with you. If it was 32,000 versus 135, I'd probably be scared too. 22,000 leave. So now he's left with 10,000 men. Again, the Lord said that there were too many and instructed Gideon on how to decrease the size of his group. All of the men followed Gideon down to a watering hole for them to get a drink. Almost all of the men got down on their knees and began to drink from the water like a dog. But there were 300 that remained that scooped the water with their hand and drank it from the palm of their hands. These 300 men who got the water from their hands now became Gideon's army. From 32,000 down to 300. 300 against how many? 135,000. Gideon's army wasn't given typical weapons of warfare. Instead of swords and spears and shields, God told them, arm yourselves with clay pots, a lighted torch, and a trumpet. They climb a hillside at the camp of the Midianites late one evening. They in unison break their pots, wave their torches, and blow their trumpets. Those 300 men begin to shout the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. The Midianites are probably hungover. They wake up disoriented. They see fire in every direction. They hear trumpets from every direction. They hear shouting and things breaking. So they grab their swords and just start swinging. But the only ones that they hit are fellow Midianites. In fact, before the night is over, 
120,000 Midianites are dead on the ground. And the men of God never even shot an arrow or swung a sword. The battle always belongs to Jesus. This chapter records the events, chapter 8, records the events that occurred in the immediate aftermath of the conflict. 15,000 soldiers get away. Gideon and his 300 are in pursuit. So Gideon sends word to the tribe of Ephraim to stop them, to not let them get away. After the Midianites were defeated and were on the run, Gideon sent messengers to the men of Ephraim to pursue after them. The Midianites did this, and they killed two, I'm sorry, the Ephraimites did this, and they killed two princes of the Midianites and brought their heads to Gideon. You see that in the last two verses of chapter 7. But now we come to chapter 8, and we hear the complaints of Ephraim. When we get to Judges 8, you would think everyone would be happy. The Midianites are running out of the country in fear. The oppressors are gone. Israel should be celebrating victory. You'd think everyone would be celebrating and singing victory in Jesus. Apparently, though, not everyone in Israel was excited about the great victory God had given Gideon and his men. It seems that some of the people in Israel were more concerned about their personal profit and pride than they were about what God had done for their nation. They failed to grasp the big picture. They were too focused on their own interests. Did you hear that? I don't know about you, but when I first read verse number one, I started getting hot under the collar. It started to get upset for Gideon and his men. Here, Gideon and 300 men had just faithfully followed the Lord. God had given them a great victory. The battle was still in progress. And here come these fellow Israelites, Gideon's kinsmen, these Johnny-come-latelys, wanting to give Gideon grief because they were supposedly left out. When they met up with Gideon, they began to criticize him and complain. They want to know why they weren't asked to join the battle. The Bible says they chided with him sharply. The word chided has the idea of bitter, strong, and cutting words. They attacked Gideon because he had not called them directly into the battle. In this case, they are just jealous over Gideon's great victory. They are sorry that they're missing out on the spoils of war. They are angry because they were not the object of the glory of Israel. And so they turned on Gideon. Here's a few points. How many enemies did Gideon fight? Can we pull that back up? 135,000. But is that really it? Was the only battle that day fought with clay pots against the Midianites? I would suggest to you There were far more than 135,000 Midianites who were the enemies to Gideon and to God that day. The people of Ephraim became the enemies of God because of their attitudes and the words they used. Consider what I just said. The people of God became their own enemy when they began to complain. The people from Ephraim had no idea about God's plan. Just consider this. The people of Ephraim were completely ignorant of what God was doing in the nation. Instead of trusting that God was working through Gideon, they chose to complain to Gideon about Gideon. Without ever considering that this was not Gideon, it was God. Why didn't you call us? Why weren't we used? Where are our spoils of war? When, we, when Gideon was calling together an army, one tribe of Israel was left out. Not because they weren't called, but simply because they didn't show up. You have two guesses, and the first one doesn't count. The tribe was Ephraim. They were nowhere to be found. There were no men of Ephraim stepping up, volunteering to fight in the army, until Gideon had the army running scared. Then they stepped up, 
and complained about the way Gideon was fighting without them instead of having fought themselves. The people from Ephraim were completely blind to how God was working. Gideon should have said, if I was Gideon in my sinful nature, I would have said, I was just minding my business, hiding from the enemy. I don't consider myself a hero. Do you really think I picked 300 men to fight against them? Do you really think I came up with a plan to carry a pot, a torch, and a trumpet? Oh, and another thing, Gideon. Our sons have been playing the trumpets for years. And you never let them play Gideon. Come on, church, you know that's the truth. Being blind to God's work is dangerous. Hear me. Being blind to God's work is dangerous. Sitting on the sidelines, complaining about the people actually working, will ensure you miss out on what God has called you to do. Third thing I want you to see there. Just imagine how Gideon felt. Can you imagine? He had just spent weeks simply obeying God. For weeks he had just, from going from hiding to now being a leader, just obeying God. Doing exactly what God had called him to do. And after a huge victory, the people of God are guilty of fighting against him after they just won. In battle, this is called friendly fire. Friend, it's 2023. And if you look at the church history since the church began, do you realize the instrument the devil has used more than any other to get the church off of mission? To get the church to quit fighting the real enemy? Our enemy is none of us. It's the devil. But do you know what the devil uses to keep us from fighting him? It's not atheists. It's not Muslims. It's not cults. It's other people who claim to follow Jesus. Could you imagine fighting a battle for God, having a wonderful victory, and the first people that he sees that are his own kinsmen? And they complain about it. Do you know how defeating that is? I have found after the biggest days, the biggest victories, God's people complain the most. After baptisms, salvations, big days. The Wednesday after we moved here doesn't probably seem very special to any one of you. We had worked for five years to get into this building. We had saved, we had scraped, we had work day after work day here. We had our big blowout service, right, to celebrate us coming here, grand opening. None of you even know this. But the Wednesday after, I didn't get to enjoy a single thing because of people in my office and decisions that they had made. Over the summer, after camp, we had young people who had gotten saved, new baby Christians, come up and give testimonies. Did I get to enjoy that? People came to my office and complained about the way they were dressed. Isn't it a shame that when there's big victories, when God is working, people look and say, well, why not me? I'll give you the answer. It's because of your big, fat, dirty mouth. It's the truth. God's not going to use someone that has a bitter heart to accomplish his work. Can I repeat that? God's not going to use someone that has a bitter heart to complete his work. Do you know why we complain? We think that we are the center of the story. And when something doesn't go our way, if something doesn't go the way we want it to, we think we have the God-given right to complain about it. We see, I see this in marriages. When my spouse doesn't do the exact thing I want them to do, I have the God-given right to complain about it. Who told you that? It wasn't God's word, or the, it wasn't any preacher, at least it shouldn't have been. Hear me, friend. You have never in the history of the world had the God-given right to complain about anything. You don't. Because your life is the marking of the blessing of God. How do I know that? Because you're here today, and you have the gospel 
being preached in your language, with a Bible in your language, that should be all that you need. God is the center of the story, not you. He is the main character, not us. He does not exist to serve us. God isn't on the throne going, oh, they're upset again. Let me try to make them happy. No. We exist to serve him, no matter our lot in life. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. We exist to glorify him. He's the main character, and we aren't. When we complain, it's because we think we're the main character. And it's a profoundly deep and serious spiritual problem that has to be dealt with. Most complaining reveals how self-centered we are. There are a lot of self-centered Christians filling seats in church all across America today. Do you know what I call them? High-maintenance Christians. Have you ever had a boyfriend or girlfriend that was high-maintenance? You know, everything just had to be perfect all the time. There's a whole lot of Christians that are exactly like that. Listen to me. I believe the greatest threat to the growth of the church is not things outside of the church. I believe it's inside the church. The greatest threat to revival is not outside the church. It's inside the church. It's high-maintenance Christians. And here's a couple of things about high-maintenance Christians. The first thing is they're selfish. Just consider. For the first time in seven years, everyone in Israel gets to eat. For the first time in seven years, everyone gets to keep their cattle. For the first time in seven years, you can leave the doors open at night. Let the kids play in the yard. Yet the Midianites, I'm sorry, the Ephraimites, after seven years of being oppressed, still aren't happy, and they begin to complain about it. This is a hard lesson for some of us to learn. It's not all about you. It's all about Jesus. It's not about what you like. It's not about your preferences. It's about reaching a lost world with the gospel. Jesus Christ and giving God glory. It's all about those things. And the moment we begin to complain, we make it about us. And it reveals a selfish heart. The second thing they are is they're just mean. You know who people complain? They're just mean. Do you know some mean Christians? Yeah, they're, they're mean. Think about it. It says they chided with him sharply. I don't think they quoted him a poem or a verse of scripture. I don't think that they began to um, sing um, all to Jesus I surrender. I don't think they held hands and sang kumbaya around a fire. They chided with him sharply. That means they chewed him out. They gnawed on him. They told him off. Just consider. For seven years, the enemy had oppressed them. And here they are, going to one of their kinsmen, chewing him off. Listen, some of the greatest people I know are Christians. I love church people. I love Christians. But you know what's also true? Some of the meanest people I know are Christians. And I don't get it. If anyone should be able to live with a smile on their face, if anyone should be able to live with the joy of the Lord in their heart, it should be us. And yet there are some people who are perpetually uptight and mad even in church. Some of you are going to be mad that I'm even preaching this message. People who complain are bitter and often simply mean. And yet Christians are commanded in Ephesians chapter 4 to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Number two, so how do we handle complainers? When people are complaining, how should God's people respond? Number one, listen for the need. Listen for the need. Do you notice what he does? After they chide him, we're not told exactly what they say, but from the context, we can get some clues. But he doesn't even respond with what their complaint was. Verse 2, he says, and he said unto them, what have I done now in comparison of you? What he's doing is he's minimizing himself. This is Gideon, by the way. He's minimizing himself. 
and then he kind of puffs up them. Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? He's reminding them that Ephraim, I don't know if you know this, if you look at the tribes and the land that they got, Ephraim had by far the most land. They had like 40% of the entire nation of Israel. One of the reasons was because of the job that they were going to do. And they needed the most land to complete their job. But because of that, they were also the richest and most blessed tribe of all 12 tribes in Israel. And so Gideon immediately turns their complaint on their heads and says, Hey, I know what you want, the spoils of war. But realize God has blessed you more than any other tribe. Number two, the second thing he does is he responds with grace. He doesn't return the same attitude that they gave him. Can I tell you my biggest thing with complaining? You know what I complain about? People that complain. You might be able to tell by the sermon. <laughs> I complain about people that complain. And it's sometimes difficult when people who have been blessed so much come to you with complaints. You want to return their attitude right back to them. Come on, church. You know it's true. You just want to return it right back on their head. But Gideon does something. In the midst of war, after being tired, after fighting all night, he responds with grace. In verse 2, Gideon reminds them of how much the Lord has blessed them. He just simply responds with kindness and grace. Proverbs 15, verse 1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath. Gideon responded with a calm, peaceful demeanor, and he gave them a soft answer. And then number 3 we should reframe the situation. Gideon does this by reminding them of how much God has blessed them. He takes the problem, uh, he takes her eyes off the problem and puts it squarely on God. He reframes the situation. If Christians are chronic complainers, here are a couple of things you need to do. Number one, call it out. If there are Christians, if they're Christian, it's the most arrogant, hear me, and selfish thing they can do complain about the very few things that are wrong in their lives. And if they're habitual at it, if they, if they continually complain, as a Christian, you should lovingly correct believers because it's a pattern of sin. Hear me. Complaining is a sin. And if we complain often, habitually, we need a fellow believer to come into our lives and say, stop. It's sinful. Number two, if they don't stop, avoid them. Like an infectious disease, complaining spreads to those who are around it. To ensure you do not become like them, avoid them. Number three, turn a bitter mouth to sweet. How do we do this? In Exodus 15, we're introduced to a place called Mara. If you don't know the people of God, they have been set free from the nation of Egypt. They have seen God part the Red Sea in miraculous fashion. They had walked across on dry water. They watched as God defeated the Egyptian army right in front of their eyes. Then the moment they get thirsty, they complain again. <laughs> Could you imagine? It's like it's a pattern in these people's lives. They complain again. They come to a place called Mara, and when they start to try to water at Mara, they find that the water is bitter. In my opinion, God created Mara to show them how bitter their mouth was. So God told Moses to pick up a log and to throw that log in front of everybody into the water. And right when the log hit the water, the waters become sweet instantly. Now, the point of the story isn't for us to conclude that if someone has a bitter mouth, we should hit them with a log. <laughs> Though we may want to. But it's to help us turn our bitter mouth sweet. The point is simple. It's to remind us that God has the power to turn that which is bitter to something sweet. Here's how we do that. Number one, guard your words. Hey, real quick. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> Look at verse number 29. 
Ephesians 4.29 says this. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. But that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed until the day of redemption. Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. The Bible makes it clear that there should be some speech that is eliminated from the believer's vocabulary. Things like bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor. Clamor is yelling, lying, evil speaking. The Bible also makes it clear that there should be some things that we should add to our speech. Goodness, graciousness, kindness, truthfulness. When we learn to communicate in the way that pleases the Lord, it changes our relationships. We need to be careful to guard our words. Number two, focus on God's blessing. Back in Judges chapter 8, verse 2, Gideon reminds them that the Lord has blessed them greatly. They already possess more than those around them. Gideon says the leftovers from your harvest are greater than when we get our harvest. Friend, the cure to a bitter heart and a bitter mouth is to remind yourself of the sweetness of your God. Count your blessings, the song says. Name them one by one. When I do marriage counseling, one of the things that I do is I have both spouses write down all the things that are wrong with their spouse. And when they're writing those things, those lists usually stop around seven, eight, maybe get up to ten. They write down those things. In the moment when there's all these problems, those things are evident. They know them. They write those very quick. But then I have them write all the things that are right about their spouse, all the things that they're grateful for. In the moment, that's a very hard list to write because they're angry, they're upset, they're hurt. But as they write, and it takes a whole lot longer than the other list takes, but what they find is that this list, as long as they take the time and they're diligent to do it, they'll find that this list with all the blessings, all the good things, is not just twice as big, not just three times as big, is ten times as big. What happens? Years of focusing on the few things that our spouses do that we don't like can make literally a mountain out of a molehill. Hey, Christian, we need to be careful that we don't look at what God has given us. And as we live in God's blessings, we begin to complain about it. Because that offends our God. So count your blessings. Name them one by one. Number three. Focus on the mission. I love this point. Focus on the mission. In 2 Corinthians chapter number 12, the Apostle Paul comes to God three times, the Bible tells us, and says, God, this hurts. Heal me. He describes it as a thorn in his flesh. He says, God, there is this something, this nagging, deep pain. And I know that you're a healer, Will you heal me, God? He prays this prayer three times. If anybody should have been healed by God, it's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, the reason we are here is because of the work that the Apostle Paul did then. We have the gospel because of the work of men like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul... Started church after church, served God faithfully after he was converted. The Apostle Paul, if he prayed something, we would all think God's going to hear him and answer that prayer. But three times he prayed it, God gave him the exact same answer. No. God said, I am not going to heal you. And he gives this answer. He says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. If anyone deserved it, it was him. Paul, if anybody could have been angry about it, it would have been Paul. God, don't you see all I do? God, I'm faithful. But instead, he keeps his focus on mission. What's his reward? Surely God just opened doors, right? No. You know what his reward was? He was thrown in prison often. He was beaten on the edges of towns. He was stoned and scourged. 
Until finally, at the end of his life, you know where he ends up? Prison again. Chained between two guards. And Paul clarifies, this is his mission. This is his focus. This is his perspective. Look what it says. Philippians 1.12 says, But I would, ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Here's the picture. The Apostle Paul's dream was to go to Rome. He knew if he'd get to Rome, the gospel could spread to the entire world. And so he told the people in Rome, I'm coming at some point. I want to be there. There's no bigger priority in my mission today than to get to Rome. And God says, I'll get you to Rome, but you're going to be chained and in prison. I don't know about you, but if that was the place that I knew I needed to get for God, and God sent me there in chains, I could be pretty bitter about it. But what does he do while he's there? He reframes his focus and realizes that after a while, if you read chapter 1 of Philippians, it'll tell you that the gospel has gone into the very, um, very government of Rome because, here's Paul. And for 12 hours a day, he's chained to two guards. And then the next 12 hours, he gets two new guards. And it changes every single day. He gets four guards a day. And they're thinking, I'm guarding a prisoner. You know what he's thinking? I have a captive audience. And every day he preaches. Not to huge crowds, but to two men that are chained to him. And you know what happens? These two men are so amazed that this man isn't complaining about his lot in life, that he's focused on spreading the gospel, that they listen. And these men get saved. And they take the gospel with them into the palace. And it says in God's word that it goes all the way up to Caesar. So Caesar even hears about the gospel of Jesus. Now, Paul could have thought 10 years ago, if I go into Rome, I'm going to be preaching on the street corner. And that's how God's going to use me. He had no idea that the best plan for the spread of the gospel was for him to go to jail until he was in jail. But at least God gave him the clarity to see the reason he was there. Many of us, when we have trials and discomforts, we don't offer praise. We offer complaint. Because we are unable to see that maybe God is using our difficulties today to get the gospel to people that we would have never had an audience with yesterday. Hear me, friend. What you're going through today isn't an accident. It was decreed by the very hand of God. And God has decreed it not so that we would live our lives complaining about every little thing that has gone wrong, but so that we would live our lives with people uh, praising our God because he has found us worthy to be on mission for him. Number four, fill your life with God. Ooh, I like it. Ooh, this one's good. You need to pray often. How can you complain? If you don't pray, what right do you have to ever complain if you haven't ever gotten on your knees to pray to God? Pray. Read your Bible. I promise you, it's awfully hard to complain while you're reading about God's sacrifice. Praise Jesus in song. You know when I'm having a bad day? It happened yesterday. You know what the first thing I did? I turned on some good gospel music, began to praise Jesus. Think about this. You need to write this verse down. Maybe go to it if you want to. Psalm 16, verse 11 says this. David says, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Christian, David is showing us the promises of God. He says that, God will show us the path of life. It shows, he says that in his presence there's fullness of joy. At his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And I don't know about you, I don't think when we get to heaven we're going to have much to complain about. 
But friend, I don't know if I have to remind you, as Christians, we are already citizens of heaven. And we can enjoy these things today. Hey, listen. You're going to leave here in a moment. You might have thoughts like, man, that preacher preached a long time. Or, man, that preacher, I, I just I don't understand what he's talking about. Here's what I hope you get. The joy that's in your heart today, the joy that you'll leave with today, is literally up to you. 100% of it is up to you. You can still leave bitter, and that's your choice too. But I don't know why you would. Maybe today you'll change your focus and say, God, show me this joy. Fill me. God, fill me with it. Let the words that leave my mouth be nothing but praise continually to a God that gave his son to die for a wretched sinner like me. Lord, help us to see all of the blessings. And Lord, help us to even praise you for when things don't go right from our perspective. Will you please stand?